This is JAMDA on the go. Your review of the content featured in JAMDA, the research-focused monthly journal of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. Did you know that the post-acute and long-term care setting has one of the highest polypharmacy rates, which increases the risk for adverse events and drug interactions? Join AMDA's new initiative. It's called Drive to Deprescribe, Optimizing Medication Use in PALTC. Learn more at paltc.org slash drive, the number two, deprescribe. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host for Jammed on the Go, Dr. Wayne Saltzman. Welcome to Jamda on the Go. This podcast will spotlight articles from the August 2021 issue of Jamda, the Journal of the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. We will be speaking with, as always, Jamda co-editor-in-chief, Dr. Philip Sloan, and associate editor, Dr. Mallory Brown. Dr. Sloan is a family physician and geriatrician with a master's degree in public health. He is the Elizabeth and Oscar Goodwin Distinguished Professor of Family Medicine and Geriatrics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and co-director for the Program on Aging, Disability, and Long-Term Care at the Cecil G. Shep Center for Health Services Research. Dr. Brown is also a family physician and geriatrician at the University of North Carolina, where she is an associate professor of family medicine and the director of the residency training program. Doctors Sloan and Brown, welcome back to uh, JAMDA On The Go. And uh, please tell us a little bit about the articles that we're gonna be discussing from the August 2021 issue. Great to be back, Wade. I'm going to be discussing two thought-provoking papers on nursing home care. The first is about resident to resident abuse. And the second is on the use and misuse of advanced directives such as the POST and the MOST form. Hmm. And I'll be talking about family and resident perspectives of quality of nursing home care, as well as delving into the murky world of long-term acute care hospitals. The murky world of LTAX. I love these reviews and discussions, so let's get started. Our first paper, Resident to Resident Elder Mistreatment in Residential Aged Care Services, a Systematic Review of Event Frequency Type, Resident Characteristics, and History. You know, Dr. Brown, this article brought back some very strong memories of mine of taking call and getting informed about these altercations, these resident to resident altercations. You know, I never knew what to say except, you know, okay, <laughs> and um, let's monitor. Um, but of course, we have heard on the other end of the spectrum about tragic issues mm -hmm. um, from these altercations as well across uh, the country. I was never aware of any research or reviews on this topic, but there is now. So tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about this systematic review. Sure. I, I chose to read this and report on it a bit because I agree, Wayne. It was always sort of on call all right, what do I do? Um, and it's an uncomfortable topic that I don't particularly dig into that much, but I thought this review was really interesting. So I think we all can agree resident to resident elder mistreatment between residents living in nursing facilities is challenging. It's challenging and um, it's an issue that unfortunately comes into play in the care of older adults. 
Evidence suggests that this mistreatment, such as verbal, physical, and sexual conflict between residents, is actually quite common. Hmm. While dementia is felt to be the leading contributor to why it occurs, other factors might influence or increase the incidence of resident-to-resident mistreatment. Other broader structural conditions of long-term care, such as confinement, lack of privacy, fewer health and social care providers, low provider-to-resident ratios, the reduction of caregiver workforce to basic physical tasks such as bathing, and care workload increases are reported to influence and in some instances foster the acts of aggression that we see. Hmm. This, of course, is distressing for the victim. It's also distressing for the family of both the perpetrator and the victim, perhaps the perpetrator as well, and of course then to us as the staff. So this review examines the frequency with which resident to resident elder mistreatment occurs in our facilities. It also identifies the types of resident to resident elder mistreatment that occur most commonly and provides an overview of the reported characteristics of both the victim and the perpetrator involved in these events. Hmm. The authors conducted a systematic review to identify 26 studies of residents living in facilities geared toward older adults. In these studies, the frequency of this mistreatment was reported to occur amongst 12 to 23% of residents in the quantitative studies that they investigated um, and included a far wider range in the qualitative studies up to 98% of residents experiencing some mistreatment. Physical and verbal abuse were the most commonly reported types of mistreatment. This review showed some interesting characteristics of the perpetrator. The mean age of the perpetrator was 81 years old. Most were men, about 83% um, in all studies, and more than 60% had Alzheimer's or another form of dementia. The victim's characteristics were largely omitted from the studies included, but the few that did make note of the characteristics similarly suggested the victims were largely male with dementia. So I thought this was a good read as the review broadens one's understanding on the extent of resident to resident mistreatment, as well as the individual and event characteristics, giving it a little more understanding of who might be um, who might be involved here. Hmm. The information can ultimately support all of us in care planning, policy development and direction for future research that might occur. And it opens the door to more research in this arena as we face an aging population um, that may may really fall victim to this more and more. Yeah, you know, I um I had two I had two thoughts, or maybe just one big giant thought about this, and something that I I'm sure you have thought about as well. I think that in part this is an onboarding process or a problem. Um, what do I mean? The um, bringing somebody into an entire new, entirely new and different environment, and just saying. Ta-da! Here you are. I can I can't imagine what goes through the mind of of uh, of folks. You know whether you have dementia or not um, under those under those circumstances. And and so if there was a way to facilitate onboarding into a into a long term care environment, um, I think that'd be helpful. And so I guess my second thought, or the extension of that, is 
as we're always talking about quality assessment and process improvement projects, you know, that medical directors and teams can undertake, it seems that, you know, putting in place or confirming or strengthening policies, um, you know, through, through QAPI, you know, might be, might be helpfulness and maybe this paper can help in that regard. That was my thought. It's interesting. You so know, I, have, I have a couple comments as well, if that's all right. Please, please, please. Yeah, the first is that, you know, the onboarding probably has to be a continuous process and it's the staff that need to be as onboarded as much as the residents mm -hmm. um, because you know, memories just aren't that good. Um, and like I remember, for example, you know, a colleague of mine had her father-in-law come into the nursing home and the first day somebody went up behind him and put his hand on his shoulder and he whacked them in the mouth, you know, yeah. because he didn't like to be approached from behind. Well, staff yeah. learned that pretty quickly, but you know, other residents may not. Yeah. Okay. The other question I have is, is it really mistreatment? You know, if someone is dementia, you know, is it really abuse? You know, is it aggression? Is it violence? Is it antisocial? You know, I mean, what is the right word? I just kind of graded at the term mistreatment. Hmm or abuse so i had the abuse no i didn't I, I, mistreatment was a concern because i you know we always let classify these as altercations mm -hmm. um in in issue an issue that has occurred between between two folks never abuse in um uh never mistreatment so yeah i was i thought the same thing uh second paper Families and Residents' Perspectives of the Quality of Nursing Home Care, Implications for Composite Quality Measures. Sometimes late at night, I do wonder, Dr. Sloan, how these quality measures ever come to be in general with regard to, um, to long-term care. Uh, love to know what, uh, what CMS is thinking sometimes. You know, and I know that when there's patient and family feedback, it's usually due to something negative. It's usually a, a, a grievance and not constructive to bettering a process or, or an institution. So it's interesting to see what we might actually look for from that cohort of individuals, family and caregivers. So, you know, what do we learn from this article? I thought this was a great study because it gave a lot of food for thought, you know, as I and others think about what kind of data are useful for quality measurement. You know, CMS quality ratings are based on a pretty narrow group of measures that largely focus on medical care. Um, you know, they don't include measures of patient experience or patient or family satisfaction, you know. But most business settings, including hospitals and primary care, and frankly, a lot of nursing home organizations gather that data and use mm -hmm. patient satisfaction as a quality indicator. Um, and if not their satisfaction, at least family satisfaction. And this has been a criticism of quality ratings for you know, years, you know, Never. and increasingly there's a call to expand the quality measures to include some measures of the patient experience. Mm. So anyway, this study describes a large survey of people living in the community who had been in post-acute nursing home care in the past six months or had family members who were nursing home residents. Um, it's interesting the way it was recruited. You know, they have a large national database of people who've agreed to respond to various surveys. They get paid for it. So they were able to survey 549,349 adults and ask them, you know, have you been at nursing home resident in the last six months, or do you have a family member who's a resident? 
and they got 4,536 yes responses. So it's a great large sample. Mm. Now, not perfect, of course, you know, folks had to have internet access and be part of this panel. So there, you can be sure there were fewer minorities and more highly educated folks. Right. Uh, still, um, so it's a, I've never seen anything this good uh, about the people in the community. When respondents were asked to rate the overall quality of care that they or their family members expected. Then they were asked specific questions about a whole bunch of areas, you know, physical environment, attentiveness to residents, provision of personal care, routine medical care, cleanliness, the social atmosphere, food quality, communication from staff, emergency medical care, physical therapy, activities, and personal care security. So I thought it was a pretty, a really nice range. Mm. They had chosen these dimensions based on review of the literature, and they asked each to be rated on a scale of zero to 100. They also asked questions about the person in the nursing home and obtained the name and address of the nursing home. So they could then merge their findings with CMS quality ratings and other characteristics of the nursing homes. That's thorough. Yeah, 28% of the respondents had been short stay, you know, post-acute residents. 72% of the responses were about long stay residents. I like that mix was good. Uh, most were family rather than former residents. So the paper reports that the individual factors most strongly associated with overall perception of quality of care were number one, staff attentiveness to residents, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and two, the quality of the personal care provided. It's all about the staff. Next came perceptions of medical care and the physical environment. So basically one of those four were things that are in the CMS quality ratings. Everything else was less strongly correlated with overall quality. And perhaps most interesting was the fact that the nursing home's five-star rating had almost no association with overall patient and family perception of quality. It's less than a 5% correlation. I'm shocked. <laughs> well, <laughs> when resident and family responses were compared then, some differences were noted, you know, because they got some resident response. Everyone rated attentiveness to residents and personal care as number one. And number two in importance, but residents then, you know, former residents assign much less weight to the physical environment, other than having it clean, and family rated the social environment and food lower than did the residents. So these are not surprising when you kind of think about, you know, um, for example, my work with Pace. You know, they love the food; it's very important. You know, whereas the families probably oh, yeah. don't eat it. Right. Um, but it underscores the fact that family and resident perceptions don't track perfectly, but they track a lot better in the CMS ratings. So in conclusion, I found this fascinating and compelling evidence that quality of care measurement in nursing homes needs to be expanded to include the consumer voice in one way or another. Yeah, you know, and, and I'm not surprised about the fact that the medical medical personnel was rated um, was rated less. You know, I I still think after all of these years doing skilled nursing work that people are frankly surprised to see that there is a um, a medical professional involved at, involved in a skilled nursing setting. I, I just, nobody really talks about it when they transition out and I, you walk in the door and you're like, and you, and you get a, Oh, Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. But you know, the nice thing about it is it emphasizes, you know, what people have been saying all along that, 
these are homes. These are yeah. where they live. That's right. And yes, they need medical care and they need good medical care, but that's not the number one thing. Yeah, absolutely. And now, a word from our sponsor, U.S. Post-Acute Care. Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost, and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At US Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. Our next paper, Pulsed, is more than a code status order form, suggestions for appropriate pulsed use in long-term care. So this definitely ding, ding, dinged with me. Uh, you know, Dr. Brown, I recall um, when uh, skilled nursing facilities in Massachusetts uh, utilized the MOLST form um, for everyone because that was how they interpreted uh, what Mass uh, Department of Public Health was telling them to do. So not for those with life-determining illnesses. So facilities were getting MOLST on folks who would have knee replacements and mm -hmm. things like that, you know. I teach students and residents that the MOLST form is a potential, uh, we call it MOLST in Massachusetts, the MOLST form is a potential outcome from having a serious illness or goals of care discussion. You know, I am happy to see this article in the August 2021 issue of JAMDA kind of dive a little bit deeper for us in this issue. What do we learn from it? No, I agree completely, Wayne. I've seen times when we've gotten most forms on just about anybody in the facility. And um, this was a nice moment to stop and think why that's not necessarily needed. Um, we <laughs> similarly call it, I think you said you call it the most form. We call it the most form here. So if I, if I um, defer to that, my apologies. But most of us do use the most or the pulsed form when framing the conversation around end of life. POLST, or the Physician Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment, is a medical order form that can be used to document preferences about CPR, medical interventions such as hospitalization, care in the intensive care unit and or ventilation, as well as artificial nutrition for those of you who have, who have not used the form before. Almost every state has a version of this form, POLST, POST, MOST, MOST. It, um, ours is hot pink. Um, and. These forms are used in the care of hundreds of thousands of geriatric patients every year, and with good purpose for many. Mm. Although PULSED is intended for persons who are at risk of life-threatening clinical events due to serious life-limiting medical conditions, some nursing homes and residential care settings use the MOST or the PULSED form to document CPR preferences for all residents. Mm -hmm which can result in potentially inappropriate use with patients who are ineligible because they're just too healthy. 
Although the physician's order, orders for life-sustaining treatment includes code status orders, it also includes orders addressing selected medical interventions that should be provided or withheld irrespective of preferences related to CPR. The code status order directs the response of nursing home staff and emergency medical responders when a nursing home resident's heart and breathing stop. But in the absence of additional information, code status is sometimes erroneously assumed to represent preferences for other kinds of treatments. This form does frequently get used to address code status, perhaps because it's filled out immediately after hospital discharge to the facility, or perhaps because it's a form that follows the patient to any medical setting, um, unlike a DNR order may specifically be used just within that facility. Right. However, using the pollster the most as the main source of documentation for code status can result in several problems. First, when the pollster is used primarily to document code status, there's an increased likelihood that it will be inappropriately offered to residents who are not otherwise pollster appropriate, like you were alluding to a person that just had a knee surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's problematic for otherwise healthy older adults to have a pollster form as they may not have experience with the context of decision-making about specific interventions. Secondly, national standards are such that a pollster form does not expire. I remember when this came into effect, at least for our most forms, and it was um, in theory supposed to be, I'm sure there were many reasons, but one was for ease so that it didn't expire and therefore leave the patient without those particular orders that they had previously agreed to, um, to, to still stand. Now, however, the flip side of that is that these decisions can follow a patient without editing even after a change in clinical status, perhaps resulting in gold discordant care. And third and finally, um, the use of the pulse as a code status order form may contribute to poor quality discussions around end of life decisions and some orders in this realm as the timing of these discussions are so important. And so often these forms are done in the context of an acute illness um, around the time of hospitalization or in other sort of high pressure situations where we all know that some of those end of life care discussions should really be initiated um, in a, a less high stress situation for the ideal opportunity. So Absolutely. the authors go on to make several suggestions for change in policy and practice, which I'd encourage you all to read. Um, this work really presents an argument that I hadn't heard before. And it made me stop to think about my current practices around most uh, using the most form here in North Carolina. Mm. No, wonderful, wonderful article. And, uh, you know, I will add that I recall um, seeing a form that uh, that I was asked to sign, um, which is was often the case early in the days. And um, it was a very healthy um, young um, young patient. Uh, and uh, she had said that she wanted do not resuscitate and do not hospitalize. And it just and they had, and only the first side was filled out of the form. And I just, it just didn't make any sense. And so I, I I went back and I I said to her I said you know I saw you filled this out this way are are, are you sure? And she said uh, no. <laughs> 
She said, I don't, I didn't understand what they were at. I guess I didn't understand what they're asking of me. And I was thinking, holy smokes, God forbid something had happened to this person. And they had gone by this form that was not appropriately completed to begin with. So I think that, um, that uh, um, the, uh, the instructions or the thoughts that come from this paper are very important for us all to refresh. Um, number one, number two, um, National Post continues to work on, you know, making this a one form national effort. I think they have 44 uh, states and our current uh, society president, Dr. Carl Steinberg is intimately involved in, uh, in helping to facilitate this, especially emanating from, from California. So I think this is a, this is a, a great time for the August 2021 issue of JAM to, to put this out, and it's um, uh, and it's an ever-evolving uh, uh, subject. Yeah, you know, and this is, you know, it's not the form that matters; it's the conversation. That's right. That, that's what advanced care planning is about. And if you that's need to right. do something fast, well, don't use a post. That's right. That's right. And that's why I tell students, this is a potential outcome of a conversation. Absolutely. Well, sadly to say our last paper, um, and by sadly, I mean, it's our last paper. And I wish we could keep talking about this stuff, um, is the appropriateness of long-term care hospital transfer, a multi-center study of Medicare ACO beneficiaries. So, Dr. Sloan, as I am the former chair of AMDA's Transitions of Care Subcommittee, this issue, um, uh, this article caught my eye. You know, we don't talk about LTACs, um, long-term care, uh, long-term acute care hospitals, you know, but they do fall under the category of post-acute care and they are utilized um, under specific circumstances. They are important in the healthcare continuum. So what do we learn from this article? Well, Wayne, you know, it took me a while to even know that they existed. <laughs> How about you? I mean, when did you find out about that? You know? um, uh, well, our institution had, a, had an LTAC, so I knew about it pretty, uh, uh, you know, at least, at, least, at least 12 years ago. Okay. Well, they just for those who are uninitiated, they're a type of post-acute and long-term care setting that has a very high reimbursement rate compared to nursing homes raising concern that they could increase healthcare costs if they effectively gain the reimbursement system. I'll just add my comment that I heard a lot about LTACs in residency when I worked in the hospital a lot, but I'd forgotten about them and I don't remember exactly what are they? Phil, tell us more, where are they? What are they? Well, it's defined as a hospital which has an average inpatient length of stay of greater than 25 days. You know, in a way, you can think of them as, as descendants of the old tuberculosis sanitariums, you know, where people would stay for a long time for serious chronic conditions. Um, now, the LTACs were developed much more recently to care for people with conditions that require ongoing care, nursing care that is not intensive care, you know, or extensive diagnostic procedures, but a lot of medical Care. You know, dollar signs arise in the minds of health economists from the fact that reimbursement is 70 to 75 percent that of an acute care hospital. So initially, they were developed to get help hospitals get rid of chronic ventilator patients. And even now, many of their patients are discharged directly from intensive care units for ventilator weaning or chronic ventilator care. 
but their scope of practice has grown, so they now take patients with not just ventilator dependency, but also ongoing dialysis, multiple IV medications, frequent transfusions, complex wound care, such as large stays for pressure ulcers and extensive burns. Uh, it turns out that they really started to grow in the 1990s, early 2000s, from 105 facilities in the country in 1993 to 318 in 2003, leading to concern that maybe the system was being gamed. This resulted in, in what's happened since then, an extended series of moratoriums on new facilities. Today, there are approximately 370, not that many more than there were in 19, I mean 2003, some of which are on the same campus as an acute care hospital, which is, I think, Wayne, which you, how you got familiar right, with. Right, right, right. While others are freestanding, and all of which are separately licensed. The big area of debate is whether they are used appropriately and whether despite the tightening associated with these moratoriums, patients continue to be inappropriately placed. Hmm. So now, as we all know, appropriateness is in the eye of the beholder. And so in this paper, this paper studied um, 17 regional LTACs in Texas, and their referrals from a 29 hospital ACO between January 2017 and May 2018. So this was before COVID. Um, and of 105 LTAC transfers they studied, only one third were considered clinically appropriate. So the first question is, well, how did they decide that? Well, hmm. they had two physicians come up to a consensus by reviewing each case. You know, the criteria were the patient should need daily clinical management by a physician-led team that could not theoretically be provided in an alternative care setting, such as skilled nursing facility. They noted that this definition is in accordance with screening criteria previously endorsed by the National Association of LTACs. And among the things that were not considered clinically appropriate were things like the physician or patient wanted to go there. They preferred it or a nursing home denied them for financial reasons or felt they didn't have the resources. Um, anyway, the study found that appropriately placed patients were not surprisingly more often transferred from an ICU, often had an ICU stay of eight or more days, were sicker, had more tubes in them, you know, such as feeding tubes, NG tubes, and so on. Now, the most common reason for inappropriate placement, according to the study, were wound care, and intravenous antibiotics, which they felt could usually be done in a nursing home. On the topic of wound care, quite a number of these inappropriate transfers were such things like an air fluid mattress, you know, to offload pressure ulcers um, that nursing homes just said they didn't have, or ultrasound debridement or hyperbaric oxygen, which they thought maybe they could transfer, they could go somewhere else every once in a while to get their treatment. And they, therefore thought they could be obtained living in another setting. Um, other reasons included, you know, physician or patient preference or denial of placement by a nursing home. Now, the emphasis I want to make is that this study did involve pre-COVID data. So in addition to legitimate questions about the author's definition of appropriateness, policymakers are now having to reassess the value of LTACs because during the early phases of COVID, and later surges, they've become a real resource for hospitals needing to free up beds by discharging subacute but very ill patients and maybe you know, without COVID. Mm -hmm. um, 
And this quote from David Grabowski, um, PhD, a professor of healthcare policy at Harvard Medical School, and now a member of our editorial board at JAMDA, exemplifies what's been happening with COVID. You know, he commented, and I'm quoting this, for years we had said, why do we need long-term acute care hospitals? And all of a sudden with COVID, we're saying, why don't we have more of them? Yeah. You know, Dr. Sloan, I'm a, I'm a, I was a little perplexed by the findings of this article, and um, maybe it's regional, um, maybe not, but there is such, um, for, from a health plan point of view, there is such scrutiny about transitioning to long-term acute care hospitals. You know, um, I, uh, for those folks who use Interqual, uh, it is very specific about the criteria required for transfer, or the answer is no. So I, I was surprised to see the, um, the amount of inappropriate uh, transfers. I thought it would have been less than that. Yeah, you know, maybe it says something about Texas more than it says about California yeah, or other places, you know, other states. Because, you know, yeah. Texas has among the lowest reimbursement rates for nursing homes in the country. And um, so, and, it, and the fact that they had, how many LTACs did they send? Almost 20 of them in that one state? Yeah. Um, suggests that, you know, maybe the distribution of care and distribution of resources is somewhat different there. Yeah, that's why, and that's what I was thinking. That it was a it was a regional issue because you know really uh, uh, intravenous antibiotics seriously, so yeah, yeah that's well, something. But then again, you know these are kinds of issues that you know we we need to think about. Yeah, and that's why we have Jamda. Uh, that's why we have Jamda and Jamda on the go. So uh, another once again uh, great jammed on the go discussion around the august 2001 issue of jamda you know i constantly laud dr sloan and brown on how they can come up with four with just four articles for our discussion when it seems to me that every article merits discussion uh under the leadership of co-editors-in-chief doctors philip sloan and cheryl zimmerman and with the support of editors like dr mallory brown the Journal of the American Medical Director Association continues to be an impactful resource in post-acute long-term care and beyond. Take a look at the August 2021 issue. Dr. Sloan, Dr. Brown, thank you again for spending your time with JAMDA on the go. Happy to do it, Wayne. References for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. And until next time, I'm Dr. Wayne Saltzman for JAMDA on the go. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our new learning management system at apex, A-P-E-X, dot P-A-L-T-C dot org. Click on podcast and follow the link to this latest episode. Thank you.